Welcome to the Building Texas Business Podcast. Interviews with thought leaders and organizational visionaries from across industry. Join us as we talk about the latest trends, challenges, and growth opportunities to take your business to the next level. The Building Texas Business Podcast is brought to you by Boyer Miller, providing counsel beyond expectations. Find out how we can make a meaningful difference to your business at BoyerMiller.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Chris Hanslick. In this episode, you will meet Devlin Lyles, president of Improving. Devlin is a leading expert in the application and use of AI for businesses. Devlin shares several helpful ideas relating to AI for businesses and believes that a business's readiness for AI is mostly psychological. Devlin, I want to thank you for taking time to join us today. Why don't we start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and, and kind of your background and your role with improving. Sure. So, Devlin Miles, that seems like an odd thing to say. <laughs> uh, so, I'm a technologist by kind of trade and training. So, I started writing software when I was very young. I was eight when I started programming. My hey, dad got young. me into it. <laughs> I started my first software company when I was 16 in high school, building used car websites and that kind of thing, right at the kind of dot-com bubble expansion. Okay. And so decided I was going to not do that as a career. I was going to go become a professional soccer player. That didn't work. So I kind of fell back into it as a hobby and kind of continued on that. Most programmers think of a professional soccer player as a dream, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I ended up kind of falling back into my hobby as a career and then came up through kind of corporate IT at Tyson Foods and then got into IT consulting and have been doing that for the last 15 years. So that's a bit about me. Okay. And, and let's talk a little bit about improving where you serve as president. Tell us a little bit about what improving does and your role there. And then, you know, one of the things I really want to focus on, as you know, is thing that's on most people's minds over the last oh, 12 to 18 months is AI. So yep. let's just kind of couch it in that context. Sure. So my role with improving has kind of evolved over the years. So I actually started as a consultant delivering to our clients and I came in kind of two and a half, three years in, and so we have an equity share model, so I grew an equity share at Improving and then took over as president uh, here in Houston in 2017. My global role for Improving is chief consulting officer. So I own client delivery, thought leadership, go-to-market, and employee growth, kind of that space. And so AI has been a big part of that conversation. Now, the interesting thing is I get to live in a time machine somewhat in this space of AI has been a big part of that story for us for five to seven years. The world and with ChatGPT kind of making it a part of the zeitgeist is really catching up. And so it's cool to have these conversations and really talk about it because a lot of our excitement and like, oh, it's going to be utopia from 2017, 2018, when the there were some big strides being made forward, I now get to kind of relive with everybody else. Interesting. Yeah, so yeah, I guess you're living it for the second time. Yeah. And it's the thing is that going through it the second time, you get somewhat of the hindsight in real time, which is interesting. Yeah. Because we ended up helping a lot of customers apply some of these technologies. And technology always has this kind of pull to off the shelf, right? Systems we used to pay tens of millions of dollars to build custom, right? Think about CRM, a client contact management system that right. almost everybody has today. Yeah. 
in the 1990s, that was a multi tens of millions of dollar project for only the biggest companies to really have a unified customer relationship management system. And today I can go put in a credit card and sign up for HubSpot or Salesforce or Dynamics right off the shelf. There's this pull to off the shelf that happens in technology, which leads to the middle market and small businesses being able to take advantage of what used to be incredibly expensive technology. And that's actually what we're seeing in the AI space is it's driving from, I no longer need a hundred million to approach this problem. I can actually apply this for 20 bucks a month. Yeah, that's a great observation. And, and yeah, it's so true that it becomes, I guess, better, efficient, and more economical, right? Yeah. Each time I guess, as technology is with us and develops longer. That's a great kind of segue. I want to just kind of start with, what are some of the key factors uh, a business should consider when evaluating their readiness for adopting AI into the business? Interesting. For adopting AI into the business, readiness is mostly psychological because there are pieces in the business today that you can do better. We break this into kind of three parts when we talk to business leaders about this. One is how do you do your job much more effectively, right? What's the superhuman version of Chris, right? There's AI tools to make that happen. Like I'm a very well augmented human. <laughs> I have tools that analyze my notes and make sure that I don't forget things. I've got tools that keep reminders and stuff on my personal network. Now they're not spamming my friends with like text messages to buy things, but it's going, Hey, you haven't talked to Bob in two months. Here's what you talked about the last time. So I can reach out to Bob. Like, hey man, we haven't caught up. How's your wife doing? How's your son doing? Like those kind of things. That's the superhuman version of me because I want to stay connected with my friends. Right. I'm just bad at it. And so it covers that gap for me. So that's the first part is like that personal productivity side, which is mainly just a resistance to change that you'd see in any technology adoption. It's psychological. Organizationally, people have tied their identity to the work they do. And so changing that means a, like an existential crisis sometimes, right? Sure. Think about a bank teller when the ATM came out, right? Now we still employ a lot of bank tellers, but their jobs drastically changed. It's that moment where we're not going to get rid of a bunch of humans and have robots doing those jobs. What we're going to do is change the job of the human to guiding them, controlling and managing the robots. I think that's an important point to kind of reemphasize for the listeners, because I think so much that's out there, you, you, have, you see these news headlines and articles. I think people think robots are going to take over the world. Mm -hmm. And I think the point you just made that that's not the case, but the role the human will play will adapt and change. And while that sounds scary in a vacuum, mm -hmm. if you actually take a moment and look back, that's what's happened throughout kind of our evolution. Especially in, in the in the industrial world and in, in, in the business world in the United States, right? Jobs have evolved and changed over time. And I've heard you say this before, so this is nothing different. I want you to dig in a little deeper mm -hmm. on that to help the listeners understand and maybe some historical points to uh, compare to so they, you know, it makes it a little more tangible. Absolutely. So think about the way we did accounting before the PC was in invented, right? So before the Apple II, we're talking in the 1970s, right? Before computing devices were in everybody's office on everybody's desk, right? The way we did accounting was we managed the book. 
and you wrote entries in and you had somebody checking the math and you had the, you know, 10 keys sitting there with the stream of numbers coming out of it. Right. And your accounting department was massively larger than it is today to be able to accomplish that. It had to be right. Which was a big overhead for a business to bear. Right. And you had these big accounting firms who would help with economies of scale or whatever, but like that was really the ball game. Right. Right. And it took a long time to like close out the books and do tax audits and those kind of things. Now, fast forward to the introduction of broad computing power that sped up that process. We still have accountants. We still have bookkeepers. But in most businesses, you can close the books on a month in 10 days, 30 days. If you're, you know, got a lot of moving parts, it's not, Hey, we just closed January and June, right? <laughs> Accrued accounting became far more prevalent. We had less financial fraud overall, right? The, the stories about it happen more often, but right. like we have less by volume, right? And we're actually getting more insights out of that because it's no longer just tracking all the pieces, but going, Hey, did you notice last month you had increased expenditures in this area without the increased revenue tied to them? And so we get business insights on top of what we used to get was just transactions. We not only have lower accounting costs, but we then have better outcomes from it. AI is going to do something similar. From a business perspective, it's going to allow us to get it's going to allow us to get better outcomes or lower our costs and give us pricing power in the market. Because all technology is labor compression, right? What a welder by hand used to take hours to do on the original factory floors and you know structural integrity of the original cars that we were rolling across an assembly line, right? Think 1930s, 1940s. We now have robotic welders who can do in 15 or 30 seconds with far more precision, with less human injury, right? Now, the quality checking, the x-ray and all that is still reviewed by a human to make sure that weld is solid. And even that we're automating some of. But like that evolution allowed us to produce stronger, faster, cheaper, safer cars, I think we're in that space where AI is largely going to be applied to the problems that are on the edges of humans do a lot of it, but we're not very good at because like our bookkeepers. Right. Uh, There's that whole notion of human error. Yeah. Not that there won't be computer error as well. Right? Oh yeah. And so you kind of, that's where the check and balance comes in. And the idea of technology is just going to solve everything. Hopefully as a civilization, we've moved past, right? The 1970s to today. I use the 1970s because that was kind of the broad evolution of, of available computing, right, to today. Every new technology has created new problems. I, I joke with our team that yesterday's solutions caused today's problems. And that's a good thing. Because one, we always have problems to solve. And two, we don't have yesterday's problems. So AI being introduced is going to create things like we now need to manage bias, the computer error, Right. That's not something we do today very well when we talk about humans, right? Like, how do you manage bias at scale in a thousand person company is like, all right, HR and an army of training. But with a computer, you can actually try to start tilting at some of these things. Now, does that mean we're going to do it well? We're going to do it better than we do today. Probably we're going to do it wrong and have to create tomorrow's problems. Yeah, I love that perspective. So what... What are some of the obstacles or pitfalls that you've seen that businesses encounter when they're trying to implement technology and maybe even obviously specific Mm -hmm. to AI technology? 
So there are two. One of them is perfectly valid and it's going to be some learning that we have to overcome. And I'm going to start with that one. The belief that I have to spend a ton of time and money to correct my data, right? Because okay. traditionally over the last 20 years, you've had data engineering and data warehousing and data lakes and like you had to clean it and curate it and do all this work. That belief is a little antiquated, right? You can bring in raw data and then actually use a lot of these automated systems, AI systems to clean it up with you so that the labor of that is way less scary. Now, that's the pitfall most people fall into is, oh, I got to get my data cleaned up before I get any value. Mm, and okay. so that ends up raising the price tag of going after these technologies and ultimately keeps companies from getting some of that benefit because they don't want to pay that cost. And Makes then sense. the second pitfall is building your own. And what I mean by building your own is every business has unique challenges and they have their particular flavors, right? It's why... Where SAP works for one, but, you know, Acumatica would be better for somebody else as an ERP system. But you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And we keep doing that, right? I was just talking to a friend of mine, Houston-based company yesterday, 500 million in revenue. And we're like talking about one of their AI initiatives. They wasted $6 million. Didn't get anything out of it. Wow. And we were talking about it. I'm like, you can do that with almost off-the-shelf tools. Everything you guys were trying to accomplish in about four months for about half a million. And the difference is that they tried to reinvent all the wheels. We don't need to do that. Just like you're not going to build your own email system. Right. You don't need to build your own baseline architecture for a large language model. Use one of the foundational ones that's off the shelf and you don't waste a lot of that time and effort. And that gets you, yeah, good way to get started. Yeah. It, it may evolve from there. May evolve from there. You may hit a problem where you do need to build your own. I, I kind of the rule of thumb I use is if your IT budget doesn't start with a B, you're probably not building your own machine learning models. <laughs> so that raises, a, I mean, I guess a good question. And that would be, how can companies distinguish between an AI solution that actually is going to offer value, mm -hmm. real value versus just a company following the hype, right? And being misguided by the solution maybe they, they choose. Fall in love with solving the problem not the tools. So if let's take my company, right? We spend a lot of time trying to solve one big problem. That big problem was knowledge. We grow the, via acquisition. We've done 14 acquisitions in 14 years. And we always create knowledge silos. And so when we bring in somebody, our current team doesn't know their stories for like selling their skill sets, what they're good at, those kind of things. And they don't know all of our stories. And so we had this big knowledge silo gap problem, right? Right. Now, ultimately what that means is when a customer goes, hey, do you do X, regardless of what X is, they're going to say no because they don't know the stories. Now, how do I overcome this? I could do training, all right? But then I got to do that training every time we acquire a company. And we're doing like we're aiming for two to four acquisitions a year, which means that's not a sustainable thing because of the, the labor cost. Right. It's like, okay, well, maybe I allow the silos to continue and just accept that's part and parcel of the business. It's possible. Possible, but you're missing out on a ton of opportunity. Exactly. Or we take all their stories, their case studies, their customer testimonials. We loaded them into what we call Echo, which is a AI-enabled chatbot. And it literally reads SharePoint, right? It, it, it's not like it's not parsing data. There's no big data engineering effort. It's loading Word documents, PDFs, all this off of SharePoint. 
and they just chat with it. And I go, hey, have we done a deal with a major energy company? And it goes, yes, here are the three that are most relevant to you. And then it embeds the PDF and goes, and here's where you find more details. So that the sales team on a sales call can have echo up on another window. Like, hey, have we ever done that? And it goes, yes, in this office, here's the people to reach out to. And, and that level of knowledge access would have cost us thousands of hours of training. right? And so it's that type of thing. Focus on the problem. Where do you have pain and where are you wasting hours? You don't actually care as a business owner, unless you're selling AI as a product, Right. you don't actually care if it's an AI solution, an automation solution, or just really clever software. You just want the problem solved. And by not falling in love with the tool, but falling in love with solving the problem, you focus on the right thing because the value add, the ROI is all about the problem, not about the tool. Look, that makes sense. It's easy to remember for sure. And I mean, I think you're right. I think most business owners agree. I just need this problem solved effectively and efficiently. So, By the way, you find these problems by going, what would it take for me to 5X my business today? The things that immediately pop to mind, you're like, oh, well, this would break and this would break and this would break and this would break. That's your list, right? For me, it's like, well, I need five times the, as many account managers and my accounting staff's got to grow and I'd need better hiring. I'm like, that's my list. Do I need five times as many account managers or do I need to help automate a lot of the account management and administrata to make them more effective? How do I upskill and get my recruiters leveraging AI sorting and those kind of things to pull more people into the pipeline? Right. Like, yeah. that's yeah. my list. By simply going, what would it take to get bigger? By like a big number. If 5X isn't scary enough, tack a zero on there. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely gets scary. So let's talk about, uh, you know, there's a lot that's been written and something we're doing kind of he, you know, here ourselves. And that's, you know, with AI out there, what are best practices that businesses should be considering around policies for using evaluating, adapting, you know, AI technology in the business. You know, there's a lot that, you know, I think it's probably best practice that there, there should, one, yes, you should have a policy, but anything you can kind of, you know, guide the listeners on, on, on those issues around a, a competent and well thought out AI policy. So it, it's got a few pieces. Number one, Data privacy needs to be forefront in that conversation, primarily to protect your business and to protect your uh, competitive advantage, right? So if your AI usage or acceptable usage policy doesn't include something about how data privacy should be evaluated, that's a big gap. Now, your opinions about data privacy are going to be your company's opinions, but those tools that are cheap and freely available today are largely cheap and freely available so that they can use your data to train a better tool. Is that okay with you, right? Some people are like, yeah, it doesn't matter. And some people are like, no, I absolutely can never allow this data out of my control, at which point you got to choose different tools, right? So data privacy is number one. Dude, to that point, I'm, you may be aware of this, and I, uh, I recently wrote a little um, blurb on it, but you have the New York Times lawsuit yeah. saying that all, you know, trained on GPT, copyrighted material, yeah, trained on copyrighted material. So that's kind of, to me, somewhat akin to data security and privacy. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's a whole, it's a whole other issue about copywriting and licensing around information. So we can talk about that in a minute, mm -hmm. but let's keep on the data or AI kind of policies 
And so you said most important thing, data privacy. What's next? Second is vendor resiliency. Now, this is going to sound a little tough to like the indie developers who are trying to launch their product. But last year in the U.S., there were 6,000 plus tools launched on the AI hype wave. Now, the punchline to that story is over 4,000 have already failed, already had to either pivot or gone out of business. Vendor resiliency. If you're going to start pulling these into your business, evaluate the vendor. Are they going to survive long enough to be valuable to you? Or do you now have a broken tool that's no longer being accessible that you've woven into your business? That is going to drive you towards some of the bigger vendors, the ones that have been around for a while. And as it kind of should, if you're right. weaving it into your ops. Now for experimentation, use, use the little players. Like that makes sense to me. But when you're talking about a broad policy, Vendor resiliency is going to be a big thing. The other side of vendor resiliency is how are they going to indemnify you from the inevitable lawsuits in this space, right? right? Microsoft, Google, Amazon have all said, if you're using our tools inside the license agreement, there's indemnity, right? That's a pretty big shield, right? Yeah. Microsoft actually said that they would, if you're using their AI services, they would protect you and defend and pay a settlement if one ends up happening for copyright infringement. So like the Times article thing won't hit the consumers of those AI tools. Microsoft has stood in front of it and said, we're good. That's a big shield. It's big. Now, if you're in a small to mid-market software player, can you put up a shield, right? Right. To your customers. As a customer, I need to start caring about this. And then lastly in that policy, some centralized knowledge repository, some centralized store. Because what we found is everybody's play. Everybody's trying, experimenting, using these tools. They're wiring in their favorite one. I do this almost on a daily basis. I kick out unapproved tools from meetings that somebody like wired up like a meeting transcriber listener bot. And I kick them out of meetings and send a note to whoever did it. I'm like, just to be clear, not approved, <laughs> right? Here's the approved one. Don't use that one. And everybody's just so expense control and some kind of central review. It doesn't have to be heavy handed. Ours is literally just a let us know when you're experimenting so we can check in on the experiment because it might be something we want to share. Yeah. Right. But some kind of central. You got centrals, right? Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of these are SaaS based. A lot of them are out kind of in the ethos of like knowledge tools, like note taking tools that I use. There would be no way for improving to know that its IP is in that tool if I didn't tell them. Yeah. And so you've got to you've got to have kind of a reporting and honor system for the employees to tell you where your data and vendors live. So one of the things that I know that improving and the leadership at improving, which includes you, you've done a great job of you know, building a culture in a company that embraces technology, embraces innovation. What what can you share about that experience and that journey at improving to maybe help? others understand you know, how they may be able to do the same thing. Absolutely. So I, I have the oddity of looking at this kind of, if I look back down the mountain, it seems like it's a long way, but all I can see is looking up the mountain and it's, it still seems insurmountable. <laughs> so I guess first would be the journey doesn't end. Don't let the size of the mountain scare you. Just take a step, yeah. right? For us, we have, a lot of like growth and planning kind of baked into our employee management model. We call it PATH. That's our employee growth systems. Okay. And part of that is maintaining your marketable job skills, literally what we call hard skills, right? The marketability of a person 
to maintain because there's this kind of natural degradation. If I stop learning, I become less and less valuable because the market moves ahead of me, right? And so recognizing that truth and going, okay, what are you doing this quarter to grow with technologies? Then we go, okay, what new tech are you learning or playing with or experimenting with this quarter? What we have found is, as long as there's a vehicle for them to share that back to the company and make an impact, people are highly engaged. If it is just playing over here and then they have to come back over here and do the same thing they've been doing for 15 years, less engagement. And so creating the vehicle in which their experiments can have long lasting impact on the business created a lot of engagement. And then the other side of it is we recognized a while ago that if you're not growing, you're dying as a business. Amen. And that's true for all of our people. It's what we call the plateau of slow death. Like you've just decided to coast that will have an accelerating decline in your value to the business. How do we help people stay on a plateau of slow growth where they're still incrementally investing? Sure. Now for us, that's five hours a week because we're a technology company. It moves quick, right? That might not need to be five hours a week for somebody in manufacturing, distribution, et cetera, but probably an hour a week just reading like there's the Wall Street Journal podcast. There's this right. podcast that's phenomenal for staying abreast of what's happening. Like consume an hour a week of new information for you and your team. And you'd be amazed at what doing that week after week will do to the business. Like it just accelerates and it sounds very simple. It was one of the first steps we took. You know, that the dedication to being intentional about the learning and self-improvement on a weekly basis, I think is amazing. That I mean, any business, right? I, mean, I believe so. I'm amazed how many business owners and friends I have that work in businesses and they're so busy that they're too busy to survive. I've said it here in this firm before and you have to repeat it and we're all can be victim of it and guilty of it, but busy can't be an excuse. Yeah. I'm too busy to do X. When, when, when X is strategic work on how to improve the, the company mm -hmm. or yourself, busy can't be an excuse. Because if it is, then nothing will ever get done because you always feel too busy. Yeah. Right? And so I pay for a lot of tools. I'm a well-augmented human, right? <laughs> One of those tools is summaries of like business articles and books and all that. And so while I was sitting here waiting for this conversation, I was reading one of those. And it's that overarching approach of like, how am I getting value out of those moments? Like when a meeting wraps up early, do you sigh in relief and like walk out and waste 10 minutes? Maybe that's good recovery and you need that for emotional balance. Okay. But is it intentional? Did you go, Hey, you know what? I need emotional balance and chose that. Or did you go, I got 10 minutes. I'm going to read that book summary or I'm going to read an article or I'm going to check out what's on HBJ innovation stuff. Like those questions, right? Just making the consumption of data an option mentally for all of us. This is why I say like a lot of our barriers are psychological because the technology is actually not scary once you start exploring it. Sure. It's only scary when it's like Skynet and Terminator from the movies. <laughs> and so then it's scary and that makes sense. But what it's interesting, it just occurred to me, let's bring this full circle from the beginning of the conversation, right? What you're talking about and recommending people be intentional about that self-learning, that discipline around self-learning and improvement is really going to be essential as new technologies come online because we you said earlier, right? 
Technology is going to force the worker to adapt. And the only way you can adapt is by continuing to learn. So to be successful alongside technology like AI, it's going to be essential. This is actually, I'm a future optimist. And what I mean by that is, I think that technology elevates humanity, right? Very similar to capitalism elevating humanity. It has made life better. It's increased longevity. It's done a lot of things. Now, that's not to say technology is perfect and we live in a utopia, like, but it is technology elevates us, but it makes us do the harder version of life, right? Technology allows us to play life on hard mode. Right. So like social media, I can doom scroll forever, which means I have to own the choice, right? Before that technology enabled me to stay connected with all my friends, I didn't have to make that choice, right? Right. AI, by taking a lot of the complexity, a lot of the time consuming tasks off my plate means that all that's left are the difficult tasks. It's the hard mode tasks and getting really good at the hard mode tasks is the value creation in the future. It's, Hey, I got to go write this software. The writing of the software, the actual typing is going to get much easier, just like accounting, just like bookkeeping, just like going through and like automatic scanning of discovery documents in the legal space. Sure. Used to be very time-consuming. Now is being accelerated by AI and automation. So now then the hard part is understanding what software I need to write and why. Understanding what those transactions mean to the business and why. Understanding what in that discovery is pertinent, important, and relevant to the story I'm telling. Right. Like all the hard tasks get left, the difficult tasks. Sure. Because those are the ones AI is really bad at. Right. <laughs> Thankfully for now. So before we wrap this up, I definitely want to ask you your thoughts on regulation and you know what you think Congress should or shouldn't do around putting some regulations in the AI space. So AI regulation is coming. Like that's going to be the case. Uh, any sufficiently developed technology ends up getting regulated at some point. Right. Should do transparency to empower a educated consumer is phenomenal. Right. Like stating if you've baked an ethical bias or a political or religious bias into a model so that the people who are using it can choose. Right. That makes sense. You realize that the, the, the output is, is tilted. Right. Has some bias. In some way. Right. right. That's great to know as a consumer. Right. And luckily, that's where a lot of the early regulations in this space are tilting. The shouldn't do side of it is dangerously close to that, which is then publish how you built the model to prove that statement, mm. which is a lot like saying, give everybody your proprietary trade secrets. Right. There's a reason that OpenAI stopped publishing a lot of their, and here's exactly how we built it. And that's because a whole bunch of other companies took that research that they had poured tens of billions of dollars into and created additional models that were almost identical in performance, right? Right. Now, they're different and they were developed by different teams and all that. But like, there's a reason it went from we have one major version of this to we now have 15 publicly available commercial models, right? That gets dangerous sure. when you start regulating people to destroying their business. And so... That's the line I'm hoping we walk. The stifled innovation that happens on that second one we're seeing in the EU when they passed the, and here's all the restrictions of AI. You have to publish your training set and your methodology and all this stuff. It's like awesome. And there was a mass exodus of AI companies from that area. Like 
Yeah. They're like, nope, we are not going to participate if you require us to kill ourselves. Right. And so no one's going to invest time and money in something that they can't then have a return on. I mean, if you look at the open AI side of it, this is tens of billions of dollars and decades of research and development and work to make this happen. Imagine if you then had a law that said, and you have to enable your competitor who doesn't have that cost to then rapidly get to the same point for a tenth, right? And so there's a balance between you want to democratize some of it. You've got to balance the investment side of it. And if you go too far, which I believe, personal belief, that the EU did, it just causes a significant drop in investment. Yeah. So, you know, kind of with that in mind, where do you kind of foresee the evolution of AI over the next five to 10 years? We have largely looked at AI as the Jetsons robot or Terminator, where it's this one thing that is omni-powerful, omni-capable, right? Omnipresent. I don't believe that's where we're going. The best minds in this space, of which I get to talk to, I am not one of. I beg to differ, but go ahead. They would tell you that it will be a cloud of things. Like, imagine that you're surrounded by Chris's swarm of empowering bots. You've got a bot that helps you manage your schedule. You've got a bot that helps you take notes from a meeting without having to like jot them down. And all of these save you 10, 15, 20 minutes, an hour and a half a day. That means somehow Chris is doing 50 hours of work in a eight hour day because you've got this superhuman capability that's empowered by all of these things. That's where we're headed. I just saw, I was playing around with a, a toolkit that there's been a lot of hype over the last few weeks is the video generator Pika. It's like mid journey or dolly or stable diffusion for images, but does videos Okay, like cinemagraphic grade quality. The problem is you have to also get really good at understanding camera movements and placement and blocking and all these things that directors have known for decades. And so it's not built for this average consumer. It's built for making folks with that knowledge massively more successful, right? Being able to go, and here's a rough of my movie idea, right? Here's a short of my movie idea for $1,000, not 70 right? Right? Like that will accelerate the creative space in movie making, but it's not going to get rid of a need for that knowledge base. Same thing's true with like geophysics and well planning and the energy space. How do we conceptualize all of this and make a human significantly more powerful? So this team that includes a drilling engineer and a geophysicist and all this can plan wells and make financial analysis and all that in days, not years, right? That acceleration is where we're going to see it. We're going to see it through these kind of micro enhancements. Okay. I carry several of them with me. I've got a note-taking system that maps all of the connected topics that I've been researching and digging into. And it's wicked fun and crazy, but I built a chat system on it that runs on my laptop. And so I can ask questions in my notes. I'm like, Hey, in my last Vistage meeting, there was a speaker who talked about this. What were the key takeaways? And it goes, here's the notes. Here are the key takeaways. Man, it's that kind of empowerment yeah. because human memory is fallible. And so how many of us have wished, like, I wish I had a better memory. It doesn't <laughs> have to live in my head. Yeah. Kind of like what, did, there was something five minutes ago I said I needed to do and now I can't remember what it is. Yeah. I mean, how often does that happen? I carry around Todoist 
and Todoist integrates with it. And so at the end of the day, right before I typically leave the office, I get a reminder set from the automation I hooked up to it. Now it looks at my calendar and goes, where's the right point to remind Devlin to do those things before the end of the day? And so like folks literally were like, I don't know how you do this. I'm like, I don't. I'm very well augmented. That, yeah. <laughs> You've said that more than once. I know you mean it. Very well augmented. So I was going to ask you what some of your favorite AI tools are. I think you shared them just now, but maybe just a, a quick summary of maybe three or four of your sure. favorite tools for the listeners who are trying to frantically take notes. <laughs> so I, for network management, so my personal network management, I use clay.earth. You literally go to clay.earth is the URL. Uh, I think it's phenomenal. And I use that to manage my network. It does not spam or reach out to. It just helps me reach out and stay connected. The kind of in my business version of that one is Dynamics. We use Sales Copilot for Dynamics. Einstein in Salesforce does the same thing. So in the business, we use a different one because different needs, right? Sure. For note-taking, I use Obsidian. You can use Evernote or OneNote in this, same thing, and it'll do a lot of the same AI enablement through plugins and those kind of things. And then you mentioned one about just demanding of the reminder. Or- mm-hmm. So I use Todoist and Power Automate. I've combined those two tools. So if you're in the Microsoft stack, right, you use Office 365 or Microsoft 365, you have access to this one already. I didn't know it. And so you can go to make.power.com. It's a Microsoft tool. You log in with your Microsoft thing and you can describe what you want it to do. I did this yesterday. I was presenting to a group of CEOs on and this topic and I was like, take the notes, my handwritten notes that I emailed a picture of myself, take the notes I emailed a picture of to myself, parse them, put the text in my notebook, scan it for action items and put those action items in Todoist. Literally, that's all I described. And it goes, okay. And it's got this massive library of these tiny little tasks And it pulls them all together and goes, here's the automation that will do that. And it writes the rough draft, the prototype of the automation for you. And you just click, all right, create. And it goes, this is the permissions I'm going to need. Are you good with that? Yep, go. And it's there. And it's running. I had to write no code. I had to wire nothing together. It just did it. Hmm. And so we're using this for like back office automation all the time. Like, hey, take this output of our financial system, slice it and dice it in this way. And it writes the pivot table creation and all that in Excel. Like that's might be half an hour to 45 minutes that I just saved our business partner in accounting. Yeah. And so it's a lot of these tiny little bots. Wow. So when you think about AI and how it could be disruptive to industry, what are maybe one of the top two industries you think it's going to be the most disruptive to? So oddly, I think logistics, supply chain, and manufacturing are probably those two. One, they've typically been underinvested in technology. And so there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. But two, it gives pricing power. Like imagine that I can compress the labor to accomplish a task. I can now outprice my competitors who aren't doing that. And in those two spaces where they're very commoditized, prices can't. Sure. If you can be 3% cheaper while maintaining your margins, that's the ballgame. And you can just put people out of business. So I think those two are going to have massive kind of immediate six to 18 month impact. If you look slightly beyond that, the construction space is huge in this. AP, great, you know, Houston story here, 
has a, a robot called Dusty that they helped to develop. Okay. It takes the construction documents for a high rise and it prints the laydown onto the concrete. It uses basically a Roomba guided by AI. It parses the construction documents and in color coded paint prints the laydown and it reduces the labor of manual labor, construction labor of building out that building because they don't have to snap chalk lines and measure everything and everything else. They just follow the color coded thing. Wow. Which also means I need lower skilled labor, which is a labor savings. Sure. Right. And so these things are changing the game and changing the pricing power on a lot of these fixed bid contracts. And so you, you see some interesting spaces where traditionally non-technology based business has a lot of low hanging fruit, like fintech and financial services has been heavily invested in technology, less low hanging fruit there. Sure. Makes so sense. the disruptive stuff, I think is going to be in those three over the next few years. Okay. <clears throat> Devlin, this has been such an interesting and, and fun conversation. Thank you for, for doing that. I want to just turn uh, just uh, to a little bit of the fun side of things when I have a guest in. And what was your first job? I guess you told us today you were programming, but was that where you get paid to do it? No. So my first job, there was a pool near our house. And I love, like, there was a Cherry 7-Up. Like, you got the bottle cap thing yeah. and you could earn points and yeah. order stuff. Like, that moment in time. And I, my parents, like, I didn't have enough allowance to like as much cherry seven up as I wanted. Right. And so I talked to the owner of the pool that we were a member of near our house into letting me like do the chlorine and the cleanup and scrub the pool for cash when I was 12. Like this was definitely not legal. <laughs> and it's so, like, I'm moving buckets of chlorine and doing all this right. stuff while my friends are playing at the pool. Because I was earning $5 a day that I could spend on Cherry 7-Up. <laughs> from an early age, right? I love it. So uh, hopefully I don't get anybody in trouble. I'm not giving you names of fools. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> so what do you prefer, Tex-Mex or barbecue? Oh, barbecue, hands down. Yeah. I have a massive pit smoker in my backyard. Like, Oh, for real? It, okay. Yeah. So we throw a barbecue in Dallas every year for 4th of July, feed like 400 people. We throw one here at our office for Labor Day, Memorial Day. Which one's at the end of the summer? Labor Day. Labor Day. For Labor Day, feed like 250 folks. Like, oh, I'm bigger than barbecue. All yeah. right. I love it. And what do you like to do for fun when you're not out speaking on AI? So I play a lot of golf with my wife. Nice. And she kicks my butt. Or I like video games and stuff like that. And so my brother and I play a lot of video games. Very good. Well, like I said, Devlin, you know, I love the conversations we've had in the past. What you shared today was so enlightening and I, I know will be valuable to those listening. And like I said, they probably, like me, took a lot of notes that they'll try to implement into their daily life. So thanks again for being here. Oh, thank you. This was great. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at BoyerMiller.com forward slash podcast. And you can find out more about all the ways our firm can help you at BoyerMiller.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.